Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about 2024 predictions, Russian diamond sanctions, and the year in the watch world. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from rainy old Los Angeles. And I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. Can you hear the sirens in the background? The kind of quintessential New York sound? No, no. Wow. But can you hear the rain in, in my background falling on I, my... I thought I uh, was led to believe it never rains in Southern California. The song was incorrect? <laughs> the song was incorrect, I'm sad to yeah, say. Sorry. But it doesn't rain that often, so I actually don't mind it. My plants are happy. Well, we should say happy, happy New Year, everyone. It's January 3rd and it's 2024, which sounds very futuristic. And it is, in fact, futuristic because we are recording this before Christmas. So a caveat to all you listening, we'll share some things. And it's possible that between the time we record today and when you're listening to this on the 3rd, some other news will come out that may change slightly what we've said or undermine it even a little. I I guess it's doubtful because not that much stuff happens in the jewelry industry this week, other than obviously people rushing to make their final jewelry sales to last minute shoppers. And then everybody else probably just takes a good breather. But we'll see. We'll see what happens in in the coming weeks. I guess, you know, we're talking about the future here, which is appropriate because this whole podcast is really going to be Rob and I sharing our thoughts about 2024 and what we expect the year will bring. And clearly it's a lot. 2023 has been a very momentous year, perhaps more so in the regular news. But I got to say, I'm not impressed with the 2020 so far. It's not been... It's not been the best decade. No, they've been challenging personally, politically, geopolitically, clearly more than anything. So I agree. I'm a little apprehensive and I'm not even going to say cautiously optimistic. I'm just cautious. I just feel nervous about what's coming, perhaps because this year is ending on a pretty grim note with war in the Middle East and war in Ukraine ongoing. And at least the economy seems, you know, reasonably okay in that we've skirted recession. Interest rates perhaps will actually begin to come down this year in 24. So perhaps there is some silver linings there without waiting too far into the geopolitical context, I guess we should stick to what we know. And those of you who are fans of JCK and who are committed and loyal readers will likely have seen a predictions feature that ran yesterday, or at least on January 2nd. And I basically canvassed a bunch of creatives and tastemakers in the biz and asked them a set of six questions that, in all honesty, I kind of cribbed from a New York Times Tea Magazine article. I I applied them to the jewelry context and changed them somewhat. But they were kind of more about the aesthetic forecast for 24. But I think in there, when you read about fashion, you read about trends, there's always an underlying context, which is, of course, the wider world we live in and, and how that might affect the colors, the styles, the motifs, and other things that we see rise in prominence and or fade away for that matter. So it's always interesting to me to see that more aesthetic forecast because it is a reflection of a wider 
wider world. And I think those of you who read the piece or maybe coming to it today will have seen is that there is a really strong movement behind white metal, particularly white gold, but of course, platinum and silver. I think that it's just time. It's there's I don't know that there's a wider reason for that return other than the traditional swing of the pendulum. We've been immersed in yellow gold for so long that white metal, to be fair, has always had a feeling of modernity to it. There's something about the way you imagine the future always seems to be more white and sleek and gleaming rather than warm and yellow. Yellow gold has a more traditional feel to it. And so perhaps it is the 2020s coming into their own as we enter kind of the mid period of the decade. Another thing people are predicting, and this is maybe a no brainer, is that blue and green gems will dominate. And there's just such a variety. So very, almost nobody mentioned the Pantone color, that sort of peachish color that Pantone announced as the color of the year for 24 but countless people mentioned blue and green gems. So I do feel like those are mainstays at this point, anything in the blue and green families. Green obviously is just so, so popular for what it evokes, which is nature. And blue just has that eternal feel of serenity to it. I think we all could use a bit of serenity. What else? The 80s and 90s. I think those are the decades to watch and the the trends that came out of those decades. Um, some of that is minimalism in the 90s. I think people are expecting 24 to be a little bit more of a a year minimalism, perhaps a reflection of current events. And I think when things get wild and upsetting in the in the wider world, our natural reaction is to tone down the way we dress and the way we adorn ourselves. It just feels more in line with the world at large. So well, there's- let me ask you, you personally, when there's an upsetting world event, does that kind of affect the way you dress? You know, I have to say no, but I wouldn't say I'm a maximalist anyway. I I think people tend to fall into their own personal camps. They're either maximalists at heart and they dress and, you know, adorn themselves that way, or they're minimalists at heart and they tend to wear more, you know, sort of simpler things, perhaps, you know, without a lot of color, without a lot of ornament. But I think it's, I guess it's less of an individual choice than just kind of the general aesthetic that we'll be seeing and that will be reflected back around us. I think that quiet luxury trend, you know, it's it's been here, it's been building. I, I don't think it's peaked. I think that there is something to be said about not flashing your wealth at a time when there's so much suffering in the world. Now, I don't, maybe there's always suffering in the world and I don't know that yeah, they'll escape it. So, so yeah. But it's just so prominent in terms of what we see and what we hear, at least here in the West and here in the U.S., that let's not forget, um, it is also a big election year. And we just got some really crazy news about Trump and his ballot prospects in Colorado, which I take it you saw. I assume the Supreme Court will weigh in sometime early this year in 24. And who knows what will happen, but election years are historically not great years for the jewelry industry. It's a, a lot of uncertainty. And I anticipate that people will pull back a little bit because it, it is just a time of, of great. And, you know, for many of us, it's uncertainty and, and dread, quite frankly, of what that ballot might bring. I don't know. What, what do you think in terms of election years? What's your sense of how those affect the industry and what 24 might bring? I mean, I remember in 2016, which was the first time that Trump ran, he was so big on the news that I do think a lot of jewelers had 
difficult time getting publicity and just getting the word out about themselves because that was such a big story that kind of dominated everybody's mental space. And you've watched the economy definitely gain steam over the past couple months and over the last year. And there was all these fears of a recession. And, you know, it's certainly possible, but it, it looks like we've avoided that. So it's I think next year is going to be a a decent year. We'll have to see. I mean, there's a lot of ways that things could go, but I'm cautiously optimistic, as they say. That old chestnut. (laughs) You know, uh, years ago, I interviewed the woman who was, I think she's now at Pantone, Iceman is her last name, and I'm spacing on her first name, but she was at a color institute prior to that, and it was kind of an interesting interview. They do these sessions where they sort of gear up and start talking about colors, you know, well in advance. So what they're looking at are things like, and I remember her using the example of the Beijing Olympics. They were looking ahead to those Olympics and thinking, well, red, because of China, that'll be a color that we're going to be seeing a lot, and it factored into their forecast. So they're looking at what's happening on a really macro, macro level many years out. And I mean, sometimes that I'm sure is works out well. And sometimes things like pandemics come in and interrupt the entire forecast. And so I don't know, maybe they maybe they now have changed their reporting cycle. So they report much closer to the actual forecast release. I don't know. I mean, I think for jewelry, it's never felt like the dominant piece of, you know, like when Pantone announces its color, everybody should line up and start buying peach gems. For jewelry, it's a little less influential than it might be for fashion or interiors. But, you know, what's interesting is in addition to the blues and greens that people in our, you know, who I canvassed for this predictions feature talked about, they also talked about neutrals, taupes and beiges. And also I've heard browns quite a bit, you know, more earthy colors, colors that are literally sort of grounded colors and also work well with all kinds of skin tones. So I think that's an interesting prediction. And also in a year of what kind of craziness is in store for us, maybe neutrals feel like a safe, calming bet as well. And I'll hand the ball over to you when, when we get there, but clearly diamonds will be top of top of mind. They always are. Lab-grown, if anybody read our top most read stories of the year, they were overwhelmingly about the lab, any, any aspect of lab-grown diamonds. So that is not a topic we've exhausted yet, not a topic that people have tired of or are still, you know, don't feel as relevant anymore. Very much the opposite. People are quite legitimately obsessed and then, of course, traceability and sourcing, which I think might be a good segue to you and what you see in the diamond landscape in 24. Yeah. So the the big news is that there will be sanctions on Russian diamonds instituted by the G7, which includes the United States. It includes the European Union as a as a as a observer or a participant or something like that. But it includes, in this case, the European Union, which of course uh, includes Belgium and Antwerp is a big diamond center and. The day before we recorded this, the European Union put out this statement about the diamond sanctions, and I I think they were a lot stronger than people expected. I, I think people expected a certain amount of teeth to them, but assuming that what they put out holds and the United States adopts it. And there's certainly questions whether the United States is going to adopt it wholeheartedly. It's going to be a major change in how the industry functions. And there was definitely a lot of surprises. They plan to put some restrictions on lab-grown diamonds, and that's partly because they're worried that 
people can just declare their diamonds as lab grown and then just take everything into the into the country. So it's going to be a huge change. And according to the setup they want, they're going to have this international ledger that's backed up by blockchain. And basically every diamond over a half a carat is going to be entered into this ledger yes. and they're all going to be traced. And it's, I guess, being compared to SWIFT or similar kind of programs where I guess it's run, it will be run by the G7 or by one of the, the member nations. And it's just going to be this huge change that uh, all of a sudden every diamond, at least if this plan goes as intended, and there's certainly scenarios where it may not come to fruition. Uh, they may find that instituting this ledger is is too complicated. It's certainly possible, though not likely, that the war in Ukraine could end by next September. I don't consider that very likely, but it's it's certainly possible. And even if it does, obviously, there may still be sanctions on Russia regardless. But I think people were really kind of taken aback by all the things that are going to be required of them. In some versions of this plan, a lot of people will have to send their diamonds to Antwerp, and that will be both rough and polished. And in some versions of this plan, people will have to send at least rough diamonds to Antwerp. And a lot of rough diamonds obviously do go to Antwerp, but this, that'll be a big change. And people are worried about the added expense, the added time. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of anxiety about this plan. I think if it works and if it's not too cumbersome and it's not too expensive, I think it will be a net positive for the industry because we've been talking so long about traceability and here would be industry-wide traceability. But again, that there's a lot of ifs there. I think there's a lot of ways that this can go wrong, but it's something that, that's clearly coming that the G7 wants to do and we'll see how the United States decides to interpret this and act on it. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. Well, what else? Any personal predictions or plans that you have that you might want to share? I think like two years ago, I, I said I wanted to talk to more people I disagree with and break out of my bubble. And I think I did. And I hope to continue to do that. I think that's very important. And uh, maybe I'll travel a little bit more. You know, somebody, <laughs> I, was, I was speaking to somebody who listens to the podcast and he was like, wow, Victoria travels all the time. And he <laughs> said, and it's, it's, it's really awesome places too. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm glad. I hope people don't judge me for it. No. Well, you know, I have a son, so I, I do always think about leaving him. I try to, you know, the trips are far and far flung, but they're usually pretty short, which is also an interesting way to travel. Not not as nearly as terrible on the jet lag as people might think, because when you go far, but you don't go for long, you don't really adjust. You're just kind of in a weird fugue state while you're wherever you are, and then you return. Yeah. 
we have to readjust. So speaking of travel in 24, I have been invited on a really interesting trip that dovetails with quite a bit of the topics we've been covering. Now it's still in the works and it's scheduled for sometime in February, although we haven't pinned down the exact dates, but the British jeweler Pippa Small, who many of you will know as a, a really first, you know, wonderful, very popular and successful jeweler. She's got stores in Notting Hill in London, a boutique that's been there for probably close to 20 years. And then a store here in LA in the Brentwood Country Mart, which is a really tony little enclave in LA. And um, I think that store has been there since 2008. Now she, she comes from a, a really interesting background that isn't jewelry. She did human rights work and I think studied medical anthropology and got into jewelry through all these different associations she had with people in different countries. She works quite a bit with jewelers and, and collectives in some really interesting places from Afghanistan to Myanmar to Jaipur in India and of course to Colombia. And she has invited me to join her on a visit to a gold mining community in Colombia in the Choco region, which is west of Bogota. It's a province that's coastal and there is a community of female gold miners there that pan for gold in, in a really traditional way. And she's on a quest to source more clean gold, gold that doesn't involve mercury or child labor or any of the bad things we associate with some more large-scale mines um, and artisanal mines for that matter. So I am hoping this will all come to fruition. I've, I've said yes, and I'm really excited because I think I've never... Sounds I've cool. To, doesn't it? I mean, I've been to, of course, you know, many people will have heard me talk about the experience of going to De Beers mine, the Zhuaneng mine, a couple times back in the early 2000s. And then again, this past May, I've been to a Tanzanite mine in Tanzania in the mid 2000s. And this will be my first gold mine. And it sounds like a really interesting way to see it because it's less of a mine than an alluvial panning operation. You know, I haven't been to a mine in a, in a long time. And, uh, you know, when I went, it was before all this stuff with video and Instagram and stuff like that. So it's very hard to convey what these places are like, even if you take pictures and if you take video. But uh, I do hope you, you take at least some video because I think that's it. These really are amazing places. And I mean, they're so different than the day to day life that we experience here in the United States. And, you know, it's hard that the, they can be very difficult places to see. But I think it's important that people understand that, first of all, not everybody lives like us, but also the importance of some of our products to poor people. And, you know, sometimes though the effects are not very good. That's undeniable, but hopefully this is uh, one of the exceptions. And I look forward to hearing a little bit more about it. Yeah, thank you. Me, me too. And I will do my best to take videos, you know, provided the people I'm with are comfortable with that. You're right. It is really hard to convey. Even pictures almost don't convey it. And, you know, and even video, you can't capture the smells and all the other sort of sensory elements that that really when you're there, I mean, I, I thrive off that visceral vibe you get when you land a new country and you kind of feel the humidity of the air and you smell. Sometimes the smells are terrible, but, you know, personally, I've and even in India, that sort of sewage smell that is so pervasive, I almost, and this is going to sound very weird, I almost love it, not because objectively speaking, I like the smell, but because it lodges in your brain and it really evokes the other times I've been to India and, you know, remember 
places through their smells. And so to me, those smells that you associate with a different country, even the bad ones, are just such a rich part of that tapestry of remembering. And and so I look forward to being in these new places. And, you know, South America is a place I've been to many times. And I have been to Colombia a gazillion years ago on a, a backpacking trip. I went to Cartagena by myself, which uh, I don't think I'll be returning to Cartagena this time, although apparently it's gotten super touristy. It's a really old city on the coast. I was there in 1995, so I'm sure it's changed quite a bit. Yeah. So anyway, more travels, more interesting travels, hopefully. Yeah. Um, what was what would you say was your coolest trip this year? Oh goodness. Well, Botswana was was pretty pretty freaking cool. Botswana's amazing place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Botswana was great. I was there with Ben Bridge and De Beers, and it was just a really lovely crew. You know, a lot of trips when you go on these press trips, and I know you haven't done a really big one for a long time, but you may remember there's usually like one or two people that are kind of annoying, and everybody, <laughs> everybody on the trip is like, oh. I think I was that person. I. How could that be, Rob? How could that? How could be? I was just kidding. Um, but on this trip to Botswana, nobody was that person, and really, wow. It was just a really nice crew, and I will just tease this. I won't go into it, but there may be a possibility of another Benbridge trip this year in 24 to a place that I, I will not even reveal just yet. Um, mm. And and that's really lovely because it's always, it's always great to go with retailers and with good people, and that Benbridge crew is just filled with lovely, lovely the women, it's, it's all women, the ones that I've dealt with, and they're just wonderful. So excited by that opportunity. But yeah, I, I have done a lot of good trips. Japan was also wonderful. And in terms of other stuff, of course, there's Watches and Wonders that's set for April this year for the watch business. Rolex has pulled a number of surprising moves for a company. And we've talked about this for a company that has always been described as evolutionary and not revolutionary. I would say 2023 or end of 22 and 23 was pretty dramatic for them. They announced you know, their certified pre-owned program, which is now here in the U.S. They um, released a number of really talked about watches in Geneva in the spring of 23, that including their emoji watches that just really caught people by surprise and have people still talking. And then last but not least, they announced that they would be acquiring and have acquired Bucherer after the chief executive passed. So Rolex is now in the retail game directly. So who knows what will come out of that, out of the Geneva brand yeah. in 24. But I think if 23 is any, any indication, they're pulling some really surprising moves. Also, one other thing I should say is at the tail end uh, of 23, we got some really interesting news about Breitling, which announced that it had acquired Universal Geneve, a very storied mid-century brand. Famously, Gerald Genta, you know, the most famous designer that's ever designed in the Swiss watch industry, created some models for Universal Geneve. And... I think among people who love vintage, it has always been this unicorn brand. It was dormant for many years. You wrote the story, so you you probably know more, more details than I do. But the fact that Breitling has acquired them and is now bringing the brand back is really, I, I didn't expect that. And it caught me by surprise. And I think it's probably pretty exciting. It'll take a few years, I assume, to get things running, but to have a storied brand like Universal Geneve back in action is pretty cool and made hint of additional acquisitions to come. Yeah. And, you know, Breitling is owned by a hedge fund. So you assume that they have a certain amount of cash resources and they could probably buy uh, other brands too. I mean, you know, uh, LVMH did it. So there's uh, no reason uh, Breitling, uh, assuming their hedge fund donors is willing, uh, 
might start buying other brands. So we'll have to see. Uh, I should say for this year, I'll probably finish my fourth book. I'm working on it now, and that'll probably be the last, probably retire from novel writing. Not that uh, the world of literature will, will be any that much poorer, but uh, so I'm excited about that. I mean, you've had an amazingly impressive run. I am the proud owner of three out of, uh, I guess, four, what will end up being a four in the series. Um, and I guess we'd all encourage you to to not exit this novel writing world, but we can have that conversation. After number yeah, four. we'll see. It's a long time till then. And uh, hopefully it'll be a, a nice year. You know, I'm, hopefully we'll have a, there'll be peace and uh, people will be a little bit better to each other. So. That's, that's what I'm oh, hoping. May we pray, yes, for, from your lips to God's ears. All right. Well, everyone wishing you a safe, prosperous, healthy, and happy 2024. Thank you for sticking with us. And we look forward to engaging, entertaining, and hopefully educating you a little bit this year. All the best. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.